Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Have you wondered about aging? Have you wondered about longevity? Have you wondered why some people seem to do better as they age and others don't? What about healthy aging? Not only living longer, but living better. Certainly, we've all pondered the consequences of advanced age. What are we doing about it? What do we know? On this episode of the original Guide to Men's Health, we examine longevity. Dr. Matt Kaberlein will guide us through what is known about longevity. Dr. Kaberlein is the co-director of the University of Washington Nathan Schock Center of Excellence in the Basic Biology of Aging. He is co-director of the Dog Aging Project. He is a University of Washington professor of pathology, an adjunct professor of genomic sciences, and an adjunct professor of oral health sciences. He is the former director, Healthy Aging and Longevity Research Institute, and former director, Biological Mechanisms of Healthy Aging Training Program. Dr. Caberline's research interests are focused on biological mechanisms of aging in order to facilitate translational interventions that promote health span and improve quality of life. Welcome, Dr. Caberline. Listen, everybody, you know, is of course interested in living longer, right? You must be the hit of all parties with people surrounding you going, give me a tip, what should I be doing? So... In your introduction, first of all, before we get down to the real basics, it is part of your research. But of course, people are going, what's the dog longevity project? So let's just start that. And then we'll go back and review longevity and determinants. But tell us about your research there. So the dog aging project is actually something that we started about 10 years ago when the idea was first conceived. And really was uh, the idea of my two colleagues at the Dog Aging Project, Daniel Promislow, who's at the University of Washington, and Kate Creevy at Texas A&M, who had been interested in the idea that companion dogs or pet dogs could be a very powerful animal in which to study the biology of aging, and in particular, the genetic and environmental factors that influence why some dogs live a long time and good health and other dogs, you know, have a shorter lifespan and get sick earlier. And and of course, we believe that the aging process in dogs is very similar to the aging process in people just accelerated. 
about sevenfold. We're all familiar with the idea that one human year is about seven dog years. So the idea was that because dogs age so rapidly, yet they live in the human environment and they're genetically diverse, they might be a very powerful model for understanding factors that influence human aging. And also because people love their pets, there's intrinsic value in being able to understand the biology of aging in companion animals and potentially someday be able to do something about it to maximize health span and and longevity. So that's the concept behind the Dog Aging Project. It took about five years to actually get the large grant to build the Dog Aging Project. And so now we've built it into what I think is probably the largest longitudinal study of aging in the world. We have about 45,000 companion dogs in the United States in the study who we are following, collecting data on those dogs. A lot of it is owner-based survey data. Some of it comes from veterinary medical records. Some of it comes from biological sampling. Again, with the goal of trying to understand what are the most relevant and important genetic and environmental factors that influence aging in dogs. And then the other piece of the Dog Aging Project, which is really much smaller than the longitudinal study, but which gets a lot of attention, is a clinical trial, which we call TRIAD, test of rapamycin in aging dogs, where we're testing whether the drug rapamycin in a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial, whether rapamycin can slow aging, increase lifespan, and improve health span in pet dogs. So that's really the that's really the dog aging project in a nutshell. Well, that's a great segue into some of the questions that we're going to be talking about. And as I said, I think everybody is going, well, what can I do as far as prolonging life and having a better quality of life? So it's just not living longer, but it's also living better. So what makes us age? I mean, talk about cell death. And we're talking to the public. So we all went through this in our courses, but see what you can just enlighten us about. Sure. So I guess where I would start is with this concept called the hallmarks of aging. So the hallmarks of aging were developed about 10 years ago now, and they started as nine processes that seem to be shared in the biological aging process across all animals. And so, you know, we could go through all nine of them, but they're all various forms of dysfunction and damage at the cellular biochemical molecular level that seem to drive the functional declines and diseases that go along with old age. And so they include things like cellular senescence. So these are cells that stop dividing and start giving off inflammatory signals. They include things like mitochondrial dysfunction. So mitochondria are sort of colloquially referred to as the powerhouses of the cell. So you could imagine if you're in a city and your power plant gets damaged, that's going to create problems for the entire grid, right? You're going to have rolling blackouts. And so so mitochondrial dysfunction is one of the hallmarks of aging, and that contributes to functional declines and diseases of old age. And like I said, there were nine of these originally. Now there's there's an updated hallmarks of aging. There are 11 or 12, depending on who you talk to. But the idea is that these are types of cellular dysfunction and damage that happen with age across all animals, as far as we can tell, and they are directly contributing to our increased risk of developing diseases of old age, of developing functional declines of old age. And I keep saying functional decline because I actually think that's important. It's most people gravitate immediately towards diseases, Alzheimer's disease, cancer, heart disease. Those are clearly relevant, but 
there are all these functional declines that go along with the aging process that from a quality of life perspective, I would argue are equally, if not more important is the actual over diseases, arthritis, right? Just an inability of our muscles to function as well and, and loss of muscle mass. So the functional declines are really important too. But I think the key concept here is there are these biological processes, pathways, mechanisms that are really driving those changes. And we want to understand what those processes are so that as we understand what they are, we have the potential to actually intervene and manipulate them in ways that should preserve function, reduce disease, reduce mortality risk as we get older. And so on the cellular level, you know, I've seen discussion of chromosome telomere length being lost as we age. And I don't know if it can ever be restored or whether that's just something that's observed or is that a direct cause of causing issues? Right. And I think cause and effect are always tricky. But what I would say is there's evidence. So, so first of all, telomere shortening, which is what you're referring to, is one of the hallmarks of aging. It's only one. So it's not everything about aging. I think that's one thing people should understand is, you know, every so often, something will catch the media's attention and suddenly that becomes the cause of aging. And if we fix that one thing, we're going to all be immortal. That's not the case, right? So telomere shortening is one of the hallmarks of aging and it contributes to a general decline in cellular integrity in certain cell types. Probably not all tissues in the body, but in tissues where there are lots of rapidly dividing cells, telomere shortening is probably more important. And so the question you posed is, you know, Number one, can we do anything about telomere shortening? And then number two, if we could, what would the impact be? And so the answer is in humans, we don't have great tools yet for extending telomeres, um, but people have done this in laboratory animals, in mice, for example. And what we see, if you artificially elongate telomeres, and that's done by expressing a, a protein called telomerase, which lengthens telomeres, you can actually increase the lifespan of, of mice, at least in certain genetic backgrounds, you know, by 15, 20%. So fairly significant effects on mortality. And those mice seem to be living longer, healthier. So they seem to be protected against some of the functional declines that go along with aging. So, so the answer is, at least in laboratory animals, yes, we can manipulate that particular hallmark. And we people have done this with other hallmarks of aging and shown that you can get you know, relatively modest, but statistically significant effects on longevity and some, some measures of health span. The last point I'll make, because this is where it can get a little bit confusing, is even though we talk about these hallmarks as if they're distinct things, mitochondrial dysfunction, telomere shortening, cellular senescence, nutrient dysregulation, even though we talk about them as distinct, unique uh, processes or entities, they're really connected, they're tied together. And so the way I think about this is there's an underlying network of aging biology that's below the hallmarks that we don't really understand very well, but that connects the hallmarks. And the reason we know this is because we know, for example, that mitochondrial dysfunction can actually cause telomere shortening, induce telomere shortening. And so there's connections between the hallmarks that are mediated by this aging network. And we know some of the players in that network, but we really don't understand it very well. But that may be why we can tweak one hallmark and we get effects throughout the entire system. And just for folks who are going, what is the telomere? It's the tip of a chromosome. Uh, chromosomes are the genetic material and the nucleus of cells that really make us who we are. And 
Your point about everything sort of being interconnected, I've always told patients our immune surveillance falls off as we age, and, and that tends to be why we're more susceptible to cancers, because our immune system guards against bad cells being made, but as we age, that isn't as robust as it used to be. So yes, I can see the interconnectivity of the aging process among cellular mechanisms. A lot of people go, well, okay, can't really do anything about that till science moves forward, but is it genetics that's put me in this position? I mean, no matter what I eat, how I exercise, what I do, am I doomed because of my genetics? Or is it the environment? If I live in a healthy environment, am I going to overcome some genetic predisposition? So I'm sure you get that question a lot. Unless you're one of the very unlucky ones, genetics is actually a relatively small piece of the puzzle when it comes to health span and lifespan expectancy, right? So we don't know exactly what the ratio is, but I think the estimates are somewhere around 25% of longevity is genetically determined, 75% is environmentally determined. And so, and I said, unless you're one of the unlucky ones, we know there are there are some rare diseases where if you have a particular genetic variant, you are pretty much guaranteed to get that disease. But for the vast majority of people, genetics plays a role, but it is not the most important role in your predicted life expectancy and health span. The other thing to appreciate is there is a component of randomness to this. So obviously one, one easy way to think about it is if you think about lifespan, if you practice risky behaviors, you will increase your likelihood of randomly dying, right? For example, if I was to walk back and forth across I-90, there's a good chance that I would not live to be 85 years old or whatever. So, so behavioral things can play a role as, as well. But if you take those out of the equation and you assume most people are not engaging in risky behaviors or overtly risky behaviors, seems like about 75% of your um, health outcome, future health outcomes are probably determined by your environment. Now, what does environment mean? And this is something where, you know, to the average person that may not be obvious. Some of it may be obvious. Air pollution is part of environment. How often you go out in the sun without sunscreen is part of environment, but your diet is part of your environment. Your activity level, how much you exercise is part of your environment. I would even say, you know, to the extent that your environment affects your sleep quality, your sleep quality is determined by your environment. All of those things are interacting with your genetics to influence your biological aging process. And so we can't really control our genetics at this point. We can be aware of our genetics. We can be aware if we're at higher risk for certain diseases, but to a large extent, most people really can modify their environment in a way that is going to give them a better opportunity to increase their health span and, and live longer. So uh, that leads us to maintaining uh, muscle mass, strength, you know, being fit. It seems a common theme in every episode of this podcast where somebody has mentioned the importance of being able to exercise, to maintain some condition of your body. And that must be part of a feedback, but go into the, you know, muscle mass, certainly as people age, they lose muscle mass and strength. Yeah. So first thing I'll say about this is, you know, obviously exercise is a potent strategy to maintain health as we age. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And I believe the reason that's the case is because many forms of exercise, maybe all forms of exercise actually impinge on the hallmarks of aging. So again, the, there are multiple ways that this is true. The most obvious one is 
the mitochondrial dysfunction that goes along with aging, the powerhouses of the cell, when we exercise, we boost mitochondrial function and we actually induce mitochondrial biogenesis. So we are actually improving one of the hallmarks of aging directly by exercising. And that's true for some of the other hallmarks as well. So I just wanna make that point. I believe the reason why exercise is so potent at maintaining health span and reducing mortality risk is because it is directly modulating the biology of aging. So then, you know, I think one interesting question is what type of exercise? Another interesting question is how much exercise? What's optimal? What should people be doing? I think that the sort of first order answer is for most people, do, do more than you're doing now, right? So most Americans are not exercising enough. Again, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. You know, is resistance training more important than cardiovascular training? They're both important. You mentioned specifically loss of muscle mass with age or, or sarcopenia. My opinion is that for the average person, given what they're doing right now, if you had to pick one, I would pick resistance training over cardiovascular training for that reason of maintaining muscle mass and muscle function as you get older. But I certainly wouldn't want to say only do one. I, I believe that that you need to be doing a combination of those different types of exercises and optimally multiple different types of activity within those groups, right? But I think for the average person, maintaining muscle mass or building as much muscle mass as you can as early or early in adulthood as you can, or, or, is there, or even into late middle age, because you want to start from having more function, more muscle mass when you get to the point when you're inevitably going to lose some. And so I think that's really important. I really like Peter Atiyah's way he talks about this and thinking about, you know, we're all going to have what he calls a terminal decade, our last 10 years of life. Think about what you want to be able to do in those last 10 years functionally. Do you want to be able to go to the grocery store and carry your bags out to the car or into your house? Do you want to be able to go up and downstairs? Do you want to be able to, to throw a ball with your grandkids or great grandkids? Think about that. And then you have to start to work back and say, okay, if I want to be able to do that in my 80s or 90s or where, whenever that terminal decade is, what do I need to be able to do now? And make sure you're working on being able to do that. I think that's a kind of a useful thought exercise for people to have in order to get yourself functionally to the point where you're able to do that. And the other thing I would say is, you know, a lot of people are scared by resistance training or lifting weights or whatever. I think there are there are different ways you can approach that. But most importantly, I mean, you kind of have to get over that. If you're intimidated by that, you've got to figure out a way that you can get past that intimidation and actually build some muscle mass. And there are lots of ways to do that. You don't have to go into a muscle building gym, you know, with all the bros or whatever and and build your muscle there. But you got to get past that and you got to start today. So I think that's a really important message for, for people to get. And there is an episode on this podcast with a uh, personal trainer who is actually contracted for the whole you. And uh, there are some links that we have to find some exercise that you can do at home easily that incorporate both cardiovascular and some resistance training. You know, doing exercise and resistance training if you don't also pay attention to nutrition is going to dramatically reduce your ability to get the most out of that exercise. So those things really need to go hand in hand. Absolutely. And we stress that throughout all the uh, discussions we have as far as uh, organ systems. And we have actually an episode on uh, diet. So 
also, you know, I'll just mention, I'm sure that, you know, exercise provides a feedback loop to your metabolism. So it isn't just muscles. It isn't just heart. There is an entire body system that is getting a good result and feedback by being active. Absolutely. Another reason why I emphasize resistance training is one of the ways that that feedback that's important that a lot of people don't appreciate is bone density, right? So again, just like muscle mass with age, most people see a loss in bone density. And we know that, you know, once you get into your seventies, eighties, fractures and things like that are strongly correlated with mortality, right? And so maintaining or even regaining bone mineral density is really important and resistance training helps with that. And so, and so that's something that, you know, most people think about muscle, but the bone part is important as well. And I think also knowing where you're at in terms of your muscle mass and bone mineral density is useful. And, you know, I very much become a believer in uh, like DEXA scans to monitor that over time. And there are some DEXAs have become more available, which is why I bring it up. There are now these companies that have mobile DEXA vans. I'm familiar with body spec. I'm sure there's others in the Seattle area where you can actually go get a DEXA for $50, figure out where you're at on your body composition, learn your bone density, learn your muscle mass. I've done a couple now over the last seven or eight months. And personally, I found it quite informative and educational to do that and be able to track changes in body composition over time. Yeah. And if you can't find one on your own, most of your primary care physicians know where the DEXA scans are. That's right. Yeah. I just mentioned this, the mobile ones, because they have different locations and you can go to the website and pick a time and you show up at a fitness center or you know wherever the van's at that day. So it's pretty convenient. But yes, you could certainly go to your primary care physician and I'm sure they'd be able to refer you to a site that has a DEXA as well. Yeah. So uh, if I were a screenwriter or somebody working up a potential great movie, they're on strike now, but I would look at exploiting the concept of a longevity gene. I could just see somebody doing research and finding the longevity gene. Is there such a thing? I'll say there are many longevity genes. One way to think about your question is, is there likely to be a gene, a single gene that we could change that would have a big impact on lifespan, right? Or health span? I guess it depends on what you mean by big. So I'll tell you what we know. In every laboratory organism that's been studied, including mice, people have found single genes that we can turn up or turn down that can have an effect on lifespan up to in mice, 25 to 30%. So that would be pretty significant, right? If we said there's a single gene in people, we're going to use this tool called CRISPR to change it, right? And people are going to live 30% longer, that would be big. That might be possible. I don't know is the answer. Nobody has found nobody has shown that that's the case in people. What I think we can say with some level of confidence is there are not what are called naturally occurring genetic variants in people that lead to that level of longevity, right? That's probably because if you think about what would have to happen for a naturally occurring genetic variant, meaning that somebody just is born with that, they would actually have to make it to reproductive age for that variant to be passed on to their children. All of these gene mutations that increase lifespan in laboratory animals come with a cost. And that cost is very often sterility. So I think the reason why we don't see human beings born with 
you know, 150 year lifespans once in a while is because those variants that might confer that level of longevity um, are immediately selected out of the gene pool, meaning that it, they're either the, the embryos are not viable or they don't make it to adulthood for some reason. That's my guess. But I think it's possible. I think it is possible that some of these genetic changes that people have made in mice, if you could do that in humans ethically, might lead to increased longevity. And it might be roughly comparable in terms of magnitude of effect. My gut feeling is it wouldn't be quite as big, but you would see significant increases in longevity if we were to do that. So uh, that sort of leads to exploration of certain successful cultures that seem to have longevity built in. Some of it has been attributed to a couple of cultures that are really plant-based, more nut-based, you know, not eating a lot of meat. But what have you found in your exploration of that? Yeah, so I'd say a couple of things. One is, I think we have to be a little bit careful. So the idea of these blue zones or these cultures or populations where, you know, they are reported to have extreme longevity and very good health span, often when people look deeply into that, the record keeping is incomplete, to, to put it nicely. So we have to be a little bit careful about how much we believe that there are very, very large differences in some of these places. Certainly there are places that have been documented to have differences in life expectancy. The Okinawa Japanese are the ones I'm most familiar with, and to me seem like one of the best documented examples. So Okinawa is an island off of mainland Japan, where uh, pretty isolated for many decades, where the Okinawans ate about 20% less total calories than mainland Japanese. Dietary composition was relatively comparable. And yet Okinawans had a life expectancy that was, I think it was like about 10 years greater than mainland Japanese. So the other, that's the other point I want to make though, is that even in the cases where these cultures have been pretty well documented to have differences in longevity, it's not huge. We're not talking 50 years. We're talking probably at most 10 years of longevity and potentially health span. And in that case, I think it's a legitimate question. Was it a sort of caloric restriction effect where because they ate about 20% less calories, that contributed to their exceptional longevity? That's hard to prove. This gets back to the correlation versus causation piece. You know, there's never going to be just one thing that's different about a particular population from the comparison group. And in, in this case, you know, people have pointed to differences in lifestyle, stress levels, activity. So can we tease out just the diet component? That's pretty speculative in my view. And so I think, unfortunately, that's often where we get left with these comparisons. And so the people who really want to believe that it's the plant-based diet that's driving this will point to that. That's hard to really prove, I think, with a with a high degree of certainty. And, and so, you know, I think we just don't know. But But I think it's reasonable to say that the dietary composition probably played a role. Was it the primary role? That's harder to know for sure. Well, we know that plant-based and Mediterranean diet tends to reduce cardiovascular risk and is generally a healthier diet and even shows some evidence of uh, decreased cancer risk. There's overeating a lot of just straight red meat and things. So I, I would be careful there though. So here's what I would say. You're right. When you compare it to the typical American diet, I think I think the meat question is actually an in interesting one. And, and I'm sort of agnostic. I'm certainly not one of these people that says you should only eat meat. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not in that crowd, but I think if you're really honest about the data, the comparisons that have really carefully tried to look at quality of diet 
and amount of calories consumed, pretty much all of the negative associations with red meat go away. Maybe not all of them, but for the most part, they go away. So I think there is this diet quality piece that often gets left out of the discussion. In other words, in general, in America, at least, people who eat a lot of red meat have a lot of other poor dietary habits, I think would be the way I would say it. And so you have to be aware when you're, especially when you're doing these correlative epidemiological studies of confounding effects that can influence the interpretation. Now, why am I calling that out? Because I think it's really important that people understand, you know, what the data actually show. And informed people can disagree on this point, absolutely. But I don't think anybody who really carefully looks at the data would say that at least some of the negative reputation for red meat has been ascribed because the quality of the diet overall for people that eat a lot of red meat is generally poor compared to the group that they're comparing it to, which are people who eat in general, a healthier diet, a Mediterranean diet, for example. So I guess I take a little bit of a different opinion from a lot of people who have strong, strong viewpoints about dietary composition and, and what's supposedly optimal. We reviewed the dietary guidelines for Americans, which is free. You can download that. It's actually a benefit. And that's updated every five years. And so in our diet episode, probably the most harmful thing we found was people who eat fast food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. And I mean, look, my sort of view is that, you know, ultra processed foods by and large, maybe not all ultra processed foods, but if you want to make a very sim simplistic sort of you know, yes, no sort of equation, put that in the no category. <laughs> if you were to eat a diet that's primarily whole foods or very lowly processed foods, you're going to be in a much better place than the average American. You know, moving through the discussion about calorie restriction, there are a lot of concepts around there about longevity. Certain people are selling books, certain people are selling products. But let's just go through a few. So we did speak about calorie restriction. What's a general amount of calorie restriction? And you have already spoken on some evidence that might support that. It's really important to differentiate what we know in laboratory animals from what we know in humans. So what we know in laboratory animals, and I'm going to just stick with mice for now. We could go to the other simpler organisms, but it's more or less the same story. So in mice and rats, what we know is that in many genetic backgrounds, and this is getting a little bit in the weeds, but it's useful for people to appreciate that in, in mice and rats, these studies are usually done in what are called inbred strains, meaning that those strains have been bred so that all of the individuals are very, very similar to each other genetically. That's very different than humans, where we're all genetically unique, right? Other than identical twins. Okay. So what we know is that in certain inbred strain backgrounds, you can dramatically extend lifespan from calorie restriction. And it's roughly proportional to the level of restriction. What I mean by that is a 25% restriction is about a 25% increase in lifespan, 50% restriction, about a 50% increase in lifespan. The farthest that I know of that anybody has gone is to a 60% restriction in total calories. In other words, you just feed them the same diet, take 60% away, and they live about 60% longer. That's true in some strain backgrounds, maybe most. What often gets left out of that conversation, if you read some of the review articles, is that there's about 30% of the time where it's actually harmful. So it works 50% of the time, 10% of the time it doesn't do anything, 20% of the time it doesn't do anything, and 30% of the time it shortens lifespan. 
So that's probably important because as I mentioned, people are genetically what's called heterogeneous, right? We have a mixed genetic background. I would not want to restrict my calories by 50% in hopes I'm going to live longer and find out I'm in that group that actually lives shorter. That would suck. So we don't actually know in people any way to predict which individuals might be in the group that might get the benefit and which might get be in the group that get the harm. So that's one thing I just want to point out because that often gets left out of the conversation. The other thing I want to point out is, and this is kind of obvious, people are not mice. And I think in the psychological realm, this is really important. So humans live in this complicated environment where we are constantly exposed to all sorts of stimuli, including food stimuli. We're also in a social, complicated social context. And so I think that we should at least be thoughtful about the psychological and social consequences of caloric restriction, intermittent fasting, things like that. And the only reason I bring that up is I've known quite a few people who have tried, played around with different variations of caloric restriction modalities. And I've seen some pretty odd behaviors manifest themselves. And so I think we just want to be careful and recognize that that some people can actually develop psychological and maybe psychiatric disorders as a consequence of trying to restrict their food. And we just, eating disorders are sort of the obvious example of that. So I point that out because like you said, there are some colleagues of mine who go out and write books where they recommend these things for everybody. I don't think it's a one size fits all equation. I think what we can say is with certainty, America has a, well, certainly the obesity epidemic is real. The average American is not at an optimal body composition and weight is sort of the useful proxy we use for body composition. Most people could benefit from eating a higher quality diet and eating fewer calories and being more active. I'm less convinced that once you get down to a, what we would typically consider a healthy weight, that restricting below that is a net win for the average person. And the other piece I would say is, I know we don't have tools to tell us which people are likely to get the benefit from going below what we would consider a healthy weight, healthy body composition. So I'm pretty cautious about trying to recommend to people something like caloric restriction, intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding even, other than as a tool that some people can use to get to and maintain a healthy body composition. And your points come back to consistency, both diet and exercise. If you can't do it consistently, you know, you may binge and lose weight and then you go back up and, you know, find what works for you. It is, as you said, it isn't one size fits all. If somebody is carrying extra pounds, which is much easier to do as you age, you certainly, as you get back to a more optimal weight, sleep better. So you take care of sleep issues. You uh, lower your blood pressure. Usually you lower your blood sugar. You may improve your reflux disease. There's all kinds of reasons for the diet and exercise to benefit. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, I think, you know, for the average person, Thinking about the what you're eating first may be easier than how much you're eating. And some of the how much gets taken care of when you fix the what. And you know that's something that often is missing from a lot of the, the dietary recommendations that are out there on the internet. Well, let's continue on sort of a list of things that some people perceive uh, that they need in order to live longer. Vitamins, any research on vitamins? So the obvious thing to say is that if you're malnourished, 
that's not a good thing from longevity. If you're thinking about like mega dosing, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the idea of mega dosing on anything. I think vitamin D is the one that I pay the most attention to, particularly being in the Seattle area. You know, probably at least half of us are walking around at the lower end of normal into the vitamin D deficient range. So I would say knowing your vitamin D certainly is important, getting that tested. And if you have the resources to do a sort of more comprehensive vitamin and nutrient testing panel, that's worth doing. So you see where you're at and fix any deficiencies. I can't point to anything where I would say you should mega dose on top of that if you're not deficient and there's clear evidence that that's beneficial. Personally, I do take a vitamin D supplement every day and that's because I was deficient and now I'm not anymore. So that's sort of my rationale there. And uh, people have heard about growth hormone. So growth hormone's tricky. So it is the case that with age, right, we have a decline in growth hormone production and signaling. Most people do. That probably contributes to a loss of muscle mass, a loss of energy to some extent. And just so people are, are aware, you know, growth hormone, you can think of it as sort of being upstream in a signaling pathway or pathways that include other growth promoting factors that you may have heard of like IGF-1 and even testosterone, right? So these things are all connected. So there have been a group of physicians for many years now that some of them call themselves anti-aging doctors who have prescribed growth hormone pretty liberally. The data in humans that I'm aware of is unclear whether that's a net benefit. So the concerns with prescribing growth hormone to people who are not deficient, clinically deficient, is potentially an increased risk of cancer. Um, it's unclear, this is again my understanding of the literature, it's unclear whether growth hormone prescriptions give a net benefit in terms of muscle function. I think it is the case that there is a net benefit in terms of muscle mass. That's actually kind of interesting. If you have an increase in muscle mass, but no increase in strength, is that a good thing? I mean, cosmetically, you might think it is. Functionally, I'm not sure. It might actually be a bad thing predisposed to injury. So I would say it's unclear whether growth hormone supplementation prescription in older people is beneficial. What, why I say it's interesting is that when you look at the animal studies, and again, this is true in mice and all the way back to the simplest organisms we study in the laboratory, it's actually a reduction in growth hormone signaling that is associated with slower aging and increased lifespan. Now, it's useful to understand most of those studies have been lower growth hormone signaling throughout development and then into adulthood. That's very different than if we were to simply shut off growth hormone signaling in you or me, right, as adults. So it's a different context, but in that context, lower growth hormone signaling, lower IGF-1 signaling is associated with slower rates of aging, longer lifespan, longer health span, also smaller body size. And again, if we think about dogs, this kind of makes sense. Big dogs age faster, live shorter than small dogs do. That's primarily due to differences in growth hormone and IGF-1 signaling. So, so there's this dichotomy, right? Where in the laboratory studies, it seems like lower growth hormone signaling means slower aging. In humans, you know, it at least been perceived among some medical practitioners that increasing growth hormone signaling is beneficial. And like I said, I'm not sure that the data actually back that up. I think things that are downstream of growth hormone and testosterone in particularly is sort of interesting. Again, there's a lot of interest, obviously, even some now telehealth companies that are doing sort of 
telehealth testosterone prescriptions for men. There are all these supplements and I've never taken any of them, so I can't vouch for them, but there are all these supplements that claim if you take this supplement, we'll boost your T, right? Is that a good thing in the context of aging? I think we still don't know. I think for testosterone, there's more evidence for improvements in mood, body composition, uh, at least perceptions of health. There may be an increased risk of cancer. I don't know how strong that signal is. So I think we just don't really know. And I would say, you know, quality of life is important. So for people where, you know, you're seeing a decline in testosterone uh, function, and that improves your quality of life, that obviously needs to be weighed into the equation as well. But from a biology of aging perspective, I think we don't know whether increasing testosterone or de decreasing testosterone would actually be more beneficial, or maybe there's no effect on overall biology of aging. I will say, and I'm not recommending this, but I will say there is some data that eunuchs live longer than intact men. And that seems to be true in dogs as well. So you know, <laughs> there is a correlation there. <laughs> Not sure too many people would volunteer for yeah, that. I was going to say, but... I don't recommend that, but you know, who knows? Um, well, we do have an episode on testosterone. I will say there was a uh, black box warning on testosterone replacement because of cardiovascular risk of heart attack, myocardial infarction. That has been now through a carefully designed study been shown not to be true. I would say if you're interested in testosterone, which you know we did a lot of when I was practicing, you want to really look at, do you need replacement? Certainly everybody can be at a normal level and go higher, but there's never enough then. So for the people who need replacement and have reasons for it and show evidence that it would be appropriate, do that through appropriate clinic. Really, uh, urology is one of those specialties. Endocrinology is another specialty. A lot of primary care physicians prescribe testosterone appropriately and do it under guidance. I would stay away from just going out and finding testosterone. It can be a problem. You probably went into this on your other podcast, but it's probably worth stating again, which is that I think you want to be sure that when you get your testosterone measured, that you get it done in the context of a physician who actually understands hormone biology. And if you only measure testosterone, that's probably not very informative. You really want to look at other hormones, sex hormone binding globulin, figure out what the free testosterone is and combine that with how you're feeling, right? I think this is the other piece, which is that I think a lot of men will know when they have a decline in testosterone because they'll feel it. But if they go get their testosterone measured, they may not see it unless they look at the other, the whole picture, right? So, so I'd say make sure you do it in that context with a physician who really knows that area and that topic well. Yeah. And morning testosterone is different than late afternoon testosterone. Sex hormone binding globulin when you're younger only binds about a third of testosterone. As we age, it's about two thirds. What is the sex hormone binding globulin's role? It doesn't really release it when we need it. So why is it there? You know, it may be the ultra long-term emergent uh, binding, but it's still not clearly understood. Yes. So go to somebody who really understands whether you need it or not. You know, for patients who are carrying more weight, getting lean and adding some muscle mass does actually enhance your baseline testosterone. So there's natural ways to do it as well. What about as we move through this medications? Uh, you mentioned one you're researching and the other is metformin. That's thought there's a longevity trial with metformin thought to be a diabetes drug. Can you just speak to that a little bit? 
Sure. There's two pieces here. One is, you know, if you need to take a prescription medication so that you don't die, do that. Like this is Matt's rule number one of longevity, don't die. So, you know, there are some medications that maybe don't affect the biology of aging, but that are really important for longevity. And I say that sort of half jokingly, but I think again, that particularly for men, and I fall into this category as well, I've gotten better, but you know, I was very reluctant to go to the doctor regularly, not because I didn't know it was a good idea, just because I didn't want to do it. Right. So, so make sure you don't have something wrong that needs to get fixed. And if you do fix it, so that's important. Now we can talk about, so what are some medications that might actually impact the biology of aging? You mentioned metformin. Metformin is really interesting. It's been you know, widely used as an anti-diabetes drug. It's, I think it's still the, the most widely used diabetes drug in the world. And there's some reason, again, from the laboratory studies to believe that it impacts the hallmarks of aging and can have an impact on lifespan and health span. The lifespan effects are overall pretty weak. So if you look in the mouse studies, and again, it depends on the strain background. So there are a couple of reports in very short-lived mouse strains where metformin had a pretty robust effect on lifespan. In the studies that have been done more recently in longer-lived mouse strains, the effects are small to non-existent. So it's a little bit unclear whether metformin, how potent it is at modulating the biology of aging. It certainly can hit some of the hallmarks of aging. And again, I'm going to go back to mitochondrial dysfunction. That's the most obvious one with metformin given its believed mechanism of action. So it probably does affect that network that I talked about, the aging network, but it's not a particularly robust way to modulate that network, I would say, in laboratory animals. In humans, it's kind of interesting. And, and I think what we know about metformin is that certainly in diabetics taking metformin compared to diabetics who are taking other treatments or not taking metformin, diabetics taking metformin seem to live substantially longer. There was one study that came out several years ago that suggested that diabetics taking metformin might live a little bit longer than non-diabetics not taking metformin. That's really interesting if true. There has since been a subsequent study that did not reproduce that. So I would say that's unclear whether that's real or not. Um, so I think we don't know at this point how potent metformin is as a longevity drug in humans. My personal take is if you're pre-diabetic or diabetic and your doc thinks you should or thinks that metformin might be a good option for you, take it. If you're non-diabetic, I don't personally think that the risk-reward really favors reward. And the risk with metformin, I mean, people think of metformin as a very safe drug, and compared to some drugs, it is. But there are some risks associated with metformin. One, it reduces testosterone in some men, so that's important to recognize. We just got done talking about testosterone. It also may negatively impact the response to exercise, particularly that mitochondrial boost that I alluded to earlier. There's some accumulating literature there. So I think it's still TBD whether metformin is really a good option to think about for people who are not metabolically challenged. The other drug that I researched quite extensively, I mentioned that we study rapamycin in the context of the dog aging project is this drug rapamycin. So it goes under the clinical name serolimus or rapamune. It's FDA approved like metformin used primarily historically in organ transplant patients as a, what people would call an immunosuppressant. So to prevent organ transplant rejection. What we know about rapamycin in the context of aging is that, again, at least in laboratory animals, it's the most robust and reproducible way to increase lifespan outside of the genetic manipulations I mentioned before. So from a drug perspective, 
It's the most robust and reproducible drug for increasing lifespan in every laboratory organism where it's been tested. And at least in mice where we can get a pretty good feel for health span, it seems to delay most, if not all, of the functional declines and diseases of aging that mice get. And what's super exciting about rapamycin, really two things. One, you can start the treatment in middle-aged in, in mice, so roughly the mouse equivalent of a 60-year-old person, still get close to all of the benefits, if not all of the benefits. And you can see improvements in some tissues and organs in terms of their function. So that's been shown most conclusively in the heart, where you can by echocardiogram see improvements in heart function when you start treatment with rapamycin in middle age. The oral cavity, so that's work from my lab where we could show you could reverse periodontal disease in aged mice. The immune system, which is interesting, we can talk a little bit more about that given that many people think of rapamycin as an immune suppressant. It's actually been shown in old mice, you can boost immune response to a vaccine uh, with rapamycin treatment. And the ovaries, which is also pretty interesting. You can actually restore ovarian function in female mice that are that are aged. So rapamycin is pretty interesting from that perspective. Now, what do we know about rapamycin in aging in humans? Not very much, obviously. That's again, an open question. There are, you know, I would guess 15, 20, 30,000 people around the world taking rapamycin off-label because they believe that it might improve their health span and lifespan. We don't have a lot of data. We really have no data that I can think of to, to support lifespan or health span claims at this point, or very limited, I should say. And I mentioned we're testing it in dogs. So I think we'll be able to answer the question in a you know, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial in dogs over the next several years. It would take much longer than that to do that sort of similar clinical trial in people. Yeah. Any other research you're doing that you want to talk about? The one thing that I'm really excited about on, on the research front is around the question of what don't we know about the biology of aging? So I've talked a lot about what we do know, right? We know about the hallmarks. We kind of sort of understand that. I talked about this network that under that's underneath it that we don't know much about. And I actually think that we're at a point in the field where we know enough about the biology of aging that we can we can tweak it. We've got some tools to tweak it and we can get small effects, relatively small effects. But I think there's a lot more that we don't know than we do know. If you think about that sort of classic iceberg picture where you can see the tip of the iceberg above the water and then the rest of the iceberg is below the water. That's the way I think about the biology of aging. Or another analogy that I really like, if you Google like what people believed the known earth looked like in like 500 BC. So you had like, uh, you know, part of Asia and part of Europe and Libya or something like that. That's it. Then you sail too far and you fall off the edge of the earth. I kind of think that's where we are with the field of aging biology right now. So there's a lot we don't know and nobody's looking for it. Nobody's asking the question, what don't we understand? So I think we need to do that. So we started trying to, to, to think about ways that we could explore the biology of aging at a much larger scale. And so we developed some technologies to allow for very high throughput lifespan studies in laboratory animals. And in this case, the technology we developed is for a simple invertebrate laboratory organism called C. elegans. They live about a month. So they're nematode worms, a very commonly used model organism in basic research. And so we created this technology that allows for hundreds of thousands of lifespan experiments to be done, where we can start to think about looking across unbiased libraries of molecules or combinations of molecules 
and let the biology tell us what's important as opposed to thinking we understand it enough that we know what's most important. So I'm really excited about that. We spun a company out of the lab called Aura Biomedical, and we're in the process of trying to raise funding for that company now. I would love to do that as an open science project and make it all available to the community. That's my bias, but you got to pay for some of this stuff. And so we're trying to trying to figure out how do we pay for it? But I think that that's an unmet need where I'm optimistic that we can learn things about the biology of aging that will really move the needle in a way that the field hasn't been able to move the needle over the last 50 years. And just to sort of put it in perspective, I mentioned caloric restriction. So that's still the largest effect that we can achieve on lifespan in a mammal, in mice, is with caloric restriction. We've known about that since 1930, 1935. So I think you can ask a legitimate question, why hasn't the field found anything better than caloric restriction since 1935? And that's not to say we haven't made a ton of progress in understanding the biology of aging, but I think part of the reason why we haven't found anything better is because people have stopped looking. People are looking under the lamppost at what we already know instead of trying to ask, what don't we know? And so that's a problem that I'm, I want to help solve and I'm excited about trying to do that. I'm going to ask one more marker and then I'm going to ask you for any resources that you would steer people to that they could find on their own. But there are some people who believe that keeping your hemoglobin A1C below 5.0, hemoglobin A1C is a measure for, most people get it drawn when they go see their physician and they're yearly a measure of whether you're potentially diabetic or pre-diabetic. Do you know anything about that, keeping it low? Very, very low. So, I mean, I think the normal range, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is like up to 5.6 or 5.9, something like that, right? Where if you, you go from normal to pre-diabetic, and then if you get even higher than that, then you can be diagnosed as diabetic. So HbA1c is sort of aggregate marker of average glucose level over the past, I don't know, three months or so. It's a crude proxy for glucose homeostasis, how well your body's regulating blood glucose and what the average level is. So the question is, and I think when you look at the epidemiological data, it's one of these J-shaped curves across the ep existing epidemiological data, meaning that as A1C goes above, out of the normal range, your risk of dying goes up. But there comes a point where you're kind of at the minimum and then it ticks up, mortality risk ticks up a little bit if A1C keeps getting lower. And so the question is, is that an artifact? And there are lots of reasons why that uptick at the J part can be an artifact, right? It's people who are sick who tend to be in that group. So I think the question is, how good is the data that in a healthy person, if you keep lowering and lowering and lowering your average blood glucose, that's better and better and better from a disease risk or health perspective. I would say I'm not a particular expert in that topic, meaning I have not tried to do the deepest dive possible to understand all of the literature on that specific question. My understanding and my intuition is that it may be the case that for a healthy person, continuing to get your average glucose lower is a good thing. There's going to be some point where it's not. But within the normal range, being at the bottom of the normal range is a good thing. My intuition is, though, it's going to be, if there is a benefit, it's incremental. And I think this is one of the things that, again, a lot of people who are getting into the optimization mindset lose sight of, right? Sure, you may be able to optimize something by doing 10 times more work, but you're only going to get 0.1% of the benefit. My intuition is with A1C, it's if there is a benefit. Is probably something like that. The other thing I would say is, and, and this fits very well with the biology of aging literature, 
more so than A1C or average glucose level, it's insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance that seems to be most strongly correlated with health outcomes, meaning that the amount of insulin your body secretes and how quickly that insulin is able to bring blood glucose down, it responsiveness to insulin sensitivity is really what is strongly associated with health outcomes and mortality. You in general wanna be more insulin sensitive and less insulin resistance. So something like there's a metric called HOMA-IR, which measures both insulin and glucose and will give you a proxy for insulin sensitivity. To my mind, that's a number I would pay more attention to than A1C in terms of thinking about where you're at in the sort of optimal metabolic health realm. Excellent. Well, any resources that you would point people to? Yeah. So, so if people want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at MKberline. I think in this sort of wellness, longevity, health space for sort of the average consumer, I really like Peter Atia's work. I think he's one of the more credible people in this space. And so I think his podcast is fantastic. I listen to it regularly. I get a lot of information, even though I know a fair amount about this space, I still learn a lot from him. He just had a book come out that is very good. So I point people towards Peter's work as one, if I was to say one place to get information from, it's a credible source. And that is unfortunately kind of lacking in this space. There are not a lot of credible sources, I would say, where most of what you hear at least has been rationally thought out. Like, I'm not going to say that everything that Peter says, I agree with, but at least he has a reason for it. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people in this space don't think carefully about some of the information that they put out there. Well, this has just been fascinating. I could go on for hours and I'm sure that, as I said, people surround you and seeking, you know, meaning of longevity and what they can do. Thank you so much. I have to just tell the audience, we've never met. You responded to an email and it's always so nice to have colleagues who are willing to share knowledge and participate. And so in this goodwill effort to improve the health of men, we thank you. Great. Thank you. It's been fun. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, PhD. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.